Well, my name's Josh Burnham. I didn't introduce myself earlier. I'm the lead pastor here at Bethel, and I get to serve with some amazing people. Some of you haven't even noticed, but um, the building team that, that you put in order last year um, renovated the stage while you were gone, and it looks phenomenal. Um, the only thing I requested was that they build the stage out four feet for the back row Baptist. You think you can get away from me, so I'm actually four feet closer today than I was ten weeks ago. Um, and so we're just excited about this. Some of us, well, where's the choir? Well, they're right back there, but until they can get closer than six feet, they're going to be in our hearts. But they will be back, and it's going to be an exciting time. Uh, we have a lot of people watching online right now also, and so we want to welcome you guys. Uh, we're excited for you to join us, and we can't wait to hear what God's doing in your life through His Word. In 2012, at the U.S. Bowling Open Championship. Just, just go with me here, right? So we're all starving for sports. A man named Pete Weber was losing. And as he was losing, he's being taunted by the crowd. Now, Pete was the best bowler. He was the number one seed in the tournament. And this was a tournament that would allow him to pass his father's record. And he's losing, he's losing, he's getting more angry, and Pete's known to have a mouth on him anyway. And many of you saw this on SportsCenter because it made the, the not-so-top ten. He wins the championship on a strike, and he turns around to his opponent and he shouts this. He says, who do you think you are? I am. And I'm thinking, who knew bowling could be so much fun? We have some bowlers in the audience. There's some over here. I'm not going to look at them. But if that's how you bowl, please invite me because I want to be a part of that. Don't YouTube that clip because if, it's, if you're not watching it on ESPN, it is not something you should watch. But I begin to think there are moments in our lives that cut us down to the knees and that cause us to question ourselves. And they ask us, who do you think you are? In February, COVID-19 stopped every economic engine that we had built our lives upon in one fell swoop. If you had told me that most of the churches, if not all the churches around the world, would not have had public corporate gatherings for Easter, I would have said, you have lost your mind. And yet it happened. If you had told me that again our nation would see protest, again we would see rioting, because a man brutally murdered another man in the plain sight of people who were begging him to stop in George Floyd. I would say, no, that wouldn't happen. If you would have said that one of our local law enforcement would have been brutally attacked and murdered, I would have said, oh no. Not, not in St. Clair. And over and over again, these situations cause me to say, Josh, who do I think I am? I've learned several things in the last weeks. One, I am not in control. And the second thing is I am not guaranteed tomorrow. And as God's providential will would hold... In January, I mapped out that we would be preaching through the book of Deuteronomy. And here we are in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. 
You're going to want to turn there because you don't want to miss this. It's good. So Deuteronomy 7-7, we're continuing through a sermon series we simply call, there are many paths, but there is only one way. Something Jesus echoes in the New Testament when he says that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. So let me catch you, as you are turning there, let me catch you up about 400 years of history. Okay, here it is in Deuteronomy. God promises Israel that he will give them a land. That's why it's called the promised land. You guys are sharper than the 8 o'clock crew. Don't tell them I said that. And through that, the people that should have received the promises says, God, we are small in their eyes. They're scary. We are small. We don't want that land. It's a good land, but we don't want it. We're terrified. And so God says, because you have rebelled, you will die in the wilderness. Even your leader Moses, will, he will see the land, but he will not enter into it. So all of that has taken place over about 400-ish years, 40 years in the wilderness. And now we get to this point where God is saying, okay, as you go in, who do you think you are? Because I am. Let's read the word of the Lord together. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. God, through his servant Moses, says, The Lord has set his heart upon you, and he chose you, not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you, and he kept the oath he swore to your fathers. He brought you out with a strong hand, and he redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Verse 9, so know that the Lord your God is the faithful God who keeps his covenant loyalty for thousands of generations and those who love him and keep his commands. But he directly pays back and destroys those who hate him. He will not hesitate to pay back directly the one who hates him. So keep the command, the statutes, and the ordinances that I am giving you to follow today. Let's pray. Father, we know that your word in Jeremiah says it is a hammer. So Lord, we ask that you would beat on the hearts of our lives today. That we would be different when we leave because you have done something unique and powerful in us. We thank you that your word is not like the grass that withers. It is not like the flowers that fade, but it stands forever. And we thank you that you love us. And have called us to be a chosen people through the blood of Jesus Christ. So Lord, work in us, change us, and mold us that we might look like your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's sermon is simply called, Who Do You Think You Are? I Am. Deuteronomy 7. So speaking to a people that, that God loves... Moses shares this about the nature and the character of God. He says in verse 7, we read it. And for those of you who think that the Old Testament is a law and the New Testament is grace and love, you haven't read your Bibles, right? Deuteronomy 7, right in the books of the law, the Torah, God says this. The Lord has... That didn't go well, okay. Deuteronomy 
Fifth book of the Bible, chapter 7, verse 7. The Lord has, he has loved you or he has desired you, delighted in you, some of your verses say. The CSB says he has set his heart upon you. Here's what's powerful about this scripture. Some of us have grown up thinking, and maybe even in more legalistic context, you do these things because if you don't, God is waiting from heaven with, to, with this gigantic heavenly thumb and he is going to smite you or smoted you. And some of us felt like that, right? I can't mess up because if the... Uh, parents, forgive me. They didn't teach me this, so that's how I felt. If the Lord came, if Jesus came back right now, don't you be doing something that he doesn't find to be inappropriate. So I'm thinking, where is he? Like Jesus could come. And I just remember thinking, I, I am trembling with fear because God is just tolerating me. He's biding his time because he doesn't love what I'm doing, so God is tolerating me. And yet in Deuteronomy, it says something different. This is the first time this word is used in Deuteronomy. It's, it's the word hasak, which means to delight in. It says in verse 7, it says that there's a strong emotional attachment. Like he loves you. He delights in you. He doesn't say, again, Josh, I'm just going to tolerate you till you get to heaven, and then I'm going to glorify you, and then it's going to make sense. God delights in his people. As much as he delights in his son, Jesus Christ, he delights in you the same way. And so whatever understanding you have of God, maybe it's time to think that your concept of God has been shaped more about the songs that you listen to and the people that you listen to more than his words. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, are you saying God is only love? He's not the God of justice. You must have come in late. Because Amos clearly says that the justice of God will roll down like a river. But if, you, if you're here today thinking God just puts up with you because that's what he has to do because he's God, who in here puts up with their son that way? No, we delight in our family. God delights in you. He hasak you. Uh, one scholar, who, his name is Brueggemann, he's a fantastic biblical mind. One of the greatest scholars in the Old Testament. This is what he says about this word. And it's, it's a powerful picture. He says, Hasak bespeaks a strong emotional attachment that runs beyond any reasonable, explicable act. He says, I can't explain why God loves you and delights in you, but you know what? He does. That's what God is sharing with Israel before they go in the promised land. And that's what God is sharing with you. Because of Jesus Christ, God delights in you. This is the gospel. The gospel is because of Jesus Christ, the Lord has set his heart upon you. I don't know about you, but if, if I need any truth in the last several weeks, this is one I want to highlight. God, you have set your heart upon me. Now, before you, before you get the big head thinking, man, Look who I am. God delights in me. He has socked me. That's what the pastor said. I am his has socked, which is not the correct past tense of the Hebrew, but we'll just go with that. No, it says that God chose you. You didn't choose him. 
God chose you. Look at this, look what he says right here in verse 7 to Israel. The Lord has set his heart upon you, and he did what? He chose you. Now you think, well, that's just the Old Testament. That's not a New Testament concept. Well, First John would say this. First John says, this is love. Not that you love God, but that he loved you. And he gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for you. Before you love God, God loved you. Ephesians adds, it is, it is God's gift. Why? In Ephesians 2, verse 9 and 10. So that no man can boast. It is not of your works. It's not something you have done. Now, chosenness can lead to, can lead to two areas that are equally sinful. Some become arrogant and say, I have it figured out. God has chosen this group, and so I am going to be arrogantly content in that is not what the Bible says. And then there's some that are complacent. They say, well, I don't have to do anything, which is not what Scripture says. But we need to rest in the fact that chosenness should cause us to fall on our knees in worship. Not in arrogance or complacency, but we should fall on our knees and say, God, why me? You are loved and you are chosen in Christ Jesus. That is the power of the gospel. And all of this is spoken to remind you that Christianity is not about you. Listen to what Moses says here. He says in the next verse, right? It's the same verse. He has his heart set on you and we say, yes. God has chosen you and we say, yes. And then he says, not not because you are more numerous than all the people, but because you are the fewest. Now, some of our um, astute biblical scholars would say, well, did not God promise Abraham in Genesis 15 that he would make his descendants as numerous, same word, as numerous as the stars? Well, the reminder here is that Israel began in Egypt with 70, not 7 million. And so God is saying... I chose you, not because you were great, but because you were small. This is why I believe that Christians, you should be, if you are a Christ follower, you should be the most humblest person in the whole world. You should go to the grocery store and they say, man, that's a humble dude picking out his Oreos. Because he knows Jesus. Wow, man, that is a meek person. What's different about them? Because we know Jesus Christ. And the power of this verse is that it shows us that God did not love Israel and he does not love you for any special reason in yourself. Let me, let me deflate the balloon for right now. God does not love you because you're great or many. He doesn't love you because you're white. He doesn't love you because you're black or any other ethnic identity. This might shock you. He doesn't love you because you're Baptist. Some of you are saying, hallelujah. He doesn't love you either because you're not Baptist. He doesn't love you because you're rich. He doesn't love you because you're poor. God loves you because he sent his son, Jesus.
to be your redemption and your hope. Do you get what God's saying here to, to Israel? He's saying, when you go into this promised land, don't think it's because you're great. I want you to remember that your God is great. We should be the most humble people on the planet. I think of it this way. Some of you grew up in the same um, tortured culture that I did, that in middle school you would, um, you would play different games. Maybe it was kickball or dodgeball or Red Rover. It was the games that you're not allowed to play anymore, right? Because all of them ended in some brutal injury for someone involved. But what they would do on the playground is they would pick the most physically imposing people and they were captains. And so then they would go and they would find the, the second most athletic group until they got to the person that just, if you're playing kickball, they found the person who couldn't kick, couldn't walk. And someone's like, okay, I'll take him, right? I have to. You know what God is saying to his people here? He said, Josh, you know that guy on the playground that had no athletic skill? You know the person that the world said, man, don't take him. Don't take her. God takes that person and says, watch me do work. Give me the nation that's the smallest. And watch me show the world how great a God I am. I don't know about you, but that gives me hope. To say, Lord, you can use me the same way. And God says, yes, that is my desire in you. That's God's will for your life. Verse 7, not because you were the greatest, but because you were the few. And now we say, well, how does all this take place? He tells us in verse 8. But because the Lord loved you and he kept the oath he swore to your fathers, he brought you out with a strong hand and he redeemed you from the place of slavery. Now this is, this is Egypt in Exodus language. This is God saying that he brought his people. He redeemed them. The word redemption here is Exodus language. It's a reminder of a gift and substitution. Some of you know the story. That God's people were stuck in Egypt. And on the night which they were delivered, God said, I want you to take a perfect lamb. And I want you to kill that lamb. And you're going to put its blood on the, the door frame of your house. And the blood of that lamb is going to be the substitute for your life. And the way God's story worked in Egypt is that anyone who had the blood of that lamb on their door, the angel of death passed over. As if, because it was, because the blood of the lamb was the substitute for their life. How does salvation work? We have a greater lamb named Jesus Christ who gave his life, who lived a sinless life, and he gave his sinless life for sinful people like me. And Jesus said, God, don't kill him. Don't send him to hell. I will pay his punishment. Lord, take me instead. And in, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he becomes our redemption. He exchanges his life for our life. And we exchange our death for his. That's the way salvation works. And in light of all of this, when you hear the question now, who do you think you are? If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you know what you can say to that? 
We can say, I am his. Who do you think you are? God, I am yours. Look at your son, Jesus. Thank you for your redemption. Thank you for the freedom. God, not of me, but because of Jesus. I am yours. God working in his people, and he's working in his people that we might see something deeper about our Father. Look at what he says next. He says, I have brought you and I have redeemed you from the place of slavery. Why in verse 9? He says, know that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations. As we've already sung, for your children and their children and their children. And some of you are thinking, man, this song's really repeating itself. We didn't repeat it a thousand times. That's how the grace of God, that's how far it extends. And even if you go home and sing that a thousand times, go a thousand times more. That's the loving kindness of our Savior. Remember, it's not about you. It's about God. And so what do we know about our God? It says very clearly, it says, Know that the Lord, the covenant name of God right here, know that the Lord is what? He is God. He, and not only is He a God, He is the God and He is whose God? I love this, right? He is your God. Don't forget that. Don't forget this or not. Well, we're just going to worship. We're going to pray to a God. God, we hope you're listening. No, we can pray, God, I know you love me and I know you are listening because I am yours and you are mine. And this God keeps His covenant and He is faithful. You know what I love about that word faithful? People ask me sometimes. You know, it sounds arrogant that you can be so confident in your salvation. You know what I do? I go to this verse. Because I'm tired of the bill of goods that many of you have been sold by religion or someone who claims to know God. And it goes like this. If you just work hard, if you keep your nose clean, if you go to church and just enough to say you go to church, right? You live in the South, that could, be, that could be once a year, it could be once a month. Just go enough that you say you go. And just give enough to say you give. And just be kind enough to say you're kind. If you do these things, then you will be accepted. You know my response to that? Is if my salvation depended upon me, and if you knew my heart... I don't have a prayer. But you know what I know about God? Let me read it again in case we missed it, verse 9. This is the reminder to Israel and the people who love him in covenant relationship. Know that the Lord your God, your God, he is God and he's what? So when that means that you are unfaithful, what is God? When that means that you are sinful, what does that make God? Faithful. When that means that you are, are filled, you are ridden with guilt and you are ridden with your past and everything that you don't want to remember, what is God? Faithful. Some of you need to highlight this verse. Because when the enemy comes and he, he reminds me of my past, Pastor, how could any, how could any God love you? Say, Satan, you forgot that 
my God is a faithful God. But don't you remember your sins? Excuse me? Because what I know is that my God is a faithful God. But what about your past? My God is a faithful God. But Josh, what about that time you poured your life on the altar and you say, God, cleanse me. I'll never do this again. And you walked out of here and the same anger you confessed was the same anger that penetrated the recesses of your life when you hit your car. My God is a faithful God. And the joy of this verse is that even when Israel was unfaithful, and they were unfaithful, and they were unfaithful, that did not diminish the eternal faithfulness of their God. There is such hope in this passage. Oh, the great joy. And so I just want to say to you right now, dear brother, rest in his faithfulness. Dear sister, rest. It doesn't depend upon you. I said, praise God. Praise God it doesn't depend upon us. He is a faithful God. You might be thinking, okay, that's awesome. So what do we do with all of this? Moses does not keep us in suspense. He does not ask them to wait till tomorrow. Look what he says in his word, verse 11. He says, because God has loved you with his heart, he's delighted in you because he has chosen you, because he is faithful, because he is your God, because of all this, he will hold guilty those who are guiltful. And he says, okay, now keep the commands, the statutes, the ordinances in verse 11 that I am giving you today. So did you catch what happened? God is faithful. Faithful. What verse is that found in, by the way? I'll give you a hint. Verse 9. And then God says, keep my word, keep my ways. What, what verse is that in? 11. We just read it, right? Okay, now see what's happening here. God doesn't say, doesn't say keep my word in verse 9, and then I will be faithful in verse 11. God says in verse 9, I am faithful so... Keep my, see, there's nothing in the Word of God that's accident. Don't let Satan flip the script. Grace and obedience always flow downhill. Some of you are worn out because you've been working your whole life with the hopes that if I do enough, if I go upstream hard enough, I will finally make it to heaven. And God says, there's nothing you can do. Obedience flows downhill. And here's something else that's happened in our world and our society that is a lie from the pit of hell. We have separated the love of God and our keeping of his word and his ways. We have said, well, love God first, and then if you're a super Christian, keep his ways. What does God say? He says, when you love me, you will obey me. And he says, when you obey me, you will love me. Jesus says it this way, those who love me keep my word. So if your exterior love for God is vocalized and displayed by your obedience to him, what does that say about your love? Keep 
the commands of God. Martin Luther says it this way. I love what Martin Luther says, this quote. I say it often. He says, you are saved by faith alone, but a faith that saves is never alone. That's exactly what the Word is saying. Some of you are convicted right now because you say, I love God, I love God, I love God, I love God. You'll sing, if we sing a song about, I love you, Lord, and I love you, would throw yourself, you would roll down the aisles. But if we sing a song, I obey you, Lord, you say, okay, pastor, that's enough. Mm-mm. You can't have it both ways. And may God call us to a place where the keeping of his word and the love of his word is flowing downhill from relationship. Keep his word found in verse 11. To a faithful God in verse 9 who delights in you. Verse 7. You see what's happening? Keep his word because God is faithful and he delights in you. Obedience flows downhill. Some of you are here today and you're thinking, I don't even know who this God is. I think there are two, there are two things in our lives. It's really the, the two manifestations of the same issue that keep you from Christ. Some of you are proud. You think that I have made my life and I am good enough. And I'm okay dying with the hopes that one day God will weigh my life and I will be found good. The Bible says there is none of us who are good. There is no pastor. There is no pope. There is no person you have ever encountered in your life other than Jesus Christ that is sinless. And you know where pride takes you? If you say, well, I'm not going to confess Christ today as my Lord and Savior. I'm just going to live as I am Pride wants to lead you to the, the gates of hell and then hand you off to eternal destruction. It's not worth it. It is not worth your pride to lose your soul. But I think there's, a, there's another manifestation of pride that, that shades itself in humility, but it's really not. It goes like this. God, I am too sinful for you to love me. God, I have too much baggage for you to save me. And you know, what, you know what Deuteronomy says to you? Who do you think you are that you would think you're so sinful that God's grace is not enough? That's why Jesus says, come all who are weary and I will give you rest. And if you have never confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there is no one here that Jesus did not die for. Confess to him through prayer. Say, God, you are what I need. Many of you here are Christ followers. And you need to sing and pray and rejoice in the time of response because you feel like you are anything other but God's. And your response through his word is this. Who do you think you are? And our gospel response is, God, I'm yours. God, I'm yours. Not because I'm big or rich or great. Because your son, Jesus, he is enough. Let's pray. Father.